thanks for engaging our doubts, our fears, our arrogance. Thanks for the ways you confront us. Thanks for the ways you show your authority. I pray now in this moment that you would open up our hearts by your spirit that we would receive. That there's a lot we're carrying. There's lots of questions we have. There's lots of places where we're unsure. Uh, would you speak into those? And I pray the resurrected Jesus would be seen for who he is as the very God of the universe who made and created everything, who we owe not just our allegiance to, but our very life to. Would that be the thing in our minds and our hearts as we listen to this text and as we leave this place? Um, Jesus, we want our hearts oriented around you. So, so would you help? Would you awaken us? Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see? Um, come now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, just by way of hospitality, let me just kind of share with you where we've been, if it's your first time or it's been a little bit. We've been marching our way through Matthew, and we come now to the last week of Jesus' life. So we've seen in some large speeches that he's giving, some long interactions, and actually we're in the middle of three sections. It's kind of three conversations or three challenges or three scenes that happen during this week, and all of them are rooted in conflict. He's about to go to the cross, which is where this conflict will kind of come to a head, and we'll see Jesus willingly give up his life. He'll die in our place. He'll be buried. Three days later, he'll rise, and then he'll commission his disciples to go and not just follow him but go and share the good news of the gospel around the whole world so that's where this thing is going for 21 or 22 chapters we've seen Jesus teaching doing miracles in so many ways what he's been doing is telling us and showing us who he is he's teaching us about who he is related to the father he's telling us what he said he was going to do he's showing miracles that are only explained by someone who's divine so we come into this section with a, a swirl of questions and accusation and resistance. But you need to understand that for a long time, Jesus has lovingly and patiently and clearly showing and uh, telling people who, who he actually is. So in this section here, it really is marked by conflict. And last week I just said none of us like love that in church. It doesn't make you feel real cozy as you leave. Last week had a whole lot of conflict in it. This is a real challenging scene. The next week is actually a little bit worse. It'll be Jesus just giving these woes or indictments to the religious leaders. So one mistake we could make is just to sit back and watch this conflict and think that it's not about us. It's about those people in that country, those many millennium, those many millennium ago. But actually, it's meant to be an invitation to you to put yourself there at the scene. So we don't like conflict, and I'm coming to terms with the fact that we, we actually kind of love it. There's things that happen in your body. There's hormones that get released when you think about fear and anxiety and anger. It's what fuels like so much of advertising. It's what fuels so much of what happens online. Yesterday, I was trying to look for someone's obituary, and I read their story, and the next little ad was something about weight loss. It would probably tell you about my algorithms that I'm into. And then it was all these clickbaits of you never believe what so-and-so got caught on tape doing. you never believe what so-and-so said to so-and-so. This person got burned in just one sentence. It's all these, like, look at this conflict. It really was like 12 different scenes or promises or temptations of watch this conflict. It's amazing. Watch this guy get smoked. Watch this person get exposed. Watch this person that you thought was amazing be revealed to not be amazing. And so there's this space in where we kind of watch that conflict on the outside. And it almost becomes entertainment which I think we should just own is really malforming us as a people to, to let conflict be a thing, not just that we engage with, with 
the principles of Jesus' word, but actually as a way to be entertained. It sells, it's enticing, it keeps you up at night, it kind of keeps rolling in those spaces. There's something about what we feel in conflict that's almost addictive. Okay, if that's the case, then you watch this scene, and I want you not just to be entertained, but enter into this. There is a crowd around, and it would be too far to say, like, this is like a chat room where they're reading the dialogue back and forth between the person who posted something and all the questions. That's probably too far to say, but there's something about that of people watching the religious leaders and Jesus go after it, because they are going after it. It's a question about authority. It's a question about who Jesus is, and really it begins in chapter 21, verse 23, where they ask him, by what right are you doing this thing? Who said you could do this? Why are you showing the authority you're showing? Because he came into the temple the day before and flipped over tables and said he was here to clean house and reestablish the very temple. Now the religious leaders would have loved it if Jesus had gone after Rome. The Messiah they expected was going to come and overthrow, overthrow the, the oppressive governments that were around them. But Jesus comes right in the very heart of the Jewish religion, right into where his people had drifted and strayed. And it's in that space that he expresses his authority. So that starts this kind of a scene of conflict where Jesus is now being challenged. And what we see is this section beginning in 21 Verse 23 through the end of chapter 23 is all answering the same question, who do you think you are, Jesus? By what right are you saying these things? And last week, I just kind of suggested to you, you have a more sanitary, socially acceptable version of this question that you ask all the time. Every moment where you're faced with obedience, you're faced with treasuring Jesus above something else, there's this thing in the back of your mind that asks about his authority. Because if he's not the sovereign God of the universe that you're going to give an account to for how you lived and what you did with him, then you can discard his teachings as advice or pro tips and you can take in and engage them almost like a consultant. But if he's the very God of the universe who created everything by whom you actually owe your very existence, then when he puts a boundary in place, you have to deal with it. So I just want to suggest to you, you have a complicated relationship with Jesus' authority expressed in sanitary ways, but it's always happening inside your soul. You're constantly asking this question, Jesus, who are you? And the answer to that will determine whether or not you have to follow and obey him. And more than just obedience, actually, would you treasure him? Or is there something else that promises power or control or approval or comfort that you could look to instead? So, so don't just watch this conflict as some ancient scribes and religious people and Herodians, you don't even know what that is, don't just watch that, enter into it and ask yourself, what am I going to do with these questions? Because what's happening in this space is not genuine exploration. We see very explicitly in the text, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're asking trick questions, they're asking questions based on ideas they don't even believe they're trying to set him up in ways to actually expose him as someone who's a false teacher, as someone who's crazy, someone who's out of line with the Old Testament, therefore someone who doesn't have the kind of authority he's expressing, therefore we don't have to deal with him. He, they're trying to trap him so they can actually run to this trial with evidence that they can actually use to accuse him. So that's, that's the setting going on. And not to get too nerdy, but there's a, a structure in this whole thing. Uh, give me just a second. Uh, in 21, verse 23, uh, they ask a question. 
And then Jesus answers that question. And he answers it by talking about John the Baptist, which John the Baptist was the scene where we get the first kind of attestation or evidence of or the kind of remark that Jesus was the Son of God. I don't know if attestation is the right word. That might, not, that might be a crazy word. That, that doesn't feel like the right word I'm supposed to use. The, the first time it's like validated or spoken or, or said. It's not in my notes. Now I feel super insecure. Uh, if you know a better word, you can let me know. If that threw you way off, just please disregard that. Okay, so they ask the question. Jesus answers the question actually by, by putting us in this scene where John the Baptist is, where God himself says, this is my son. Okay, and then it goes into three parables that actually create some conflict, that creates some tension. And now it goes into three questions And then Jesus is going to ask another question that puts him right back in that space of who is the Son of God. And then you'll see the religious leaders' response to that. So it goes religious leaders, Jesus, three parables, then three questions, then Jesus, then the religious leaders. All of that is around this idea of conflict. You have to hold that in your mind because otherwise these little stories or these answers feel like they fall flat on the questions you're really asking. So if you're asking, what do I do with taxes and the government? This little story isn't enough to answer that question. But if you realize it's a question about authority, then you realize, oh my gosh, what Jesus is telling us and teaching us there exposes and highlights and amplifies his authority in beautiful ways. If you have questions about about marriage and what happens after a spouse dies, this section is not enough to kind of soothe that longing or answer those questions. But, But if you realize it's a trap question from people that don't even believe in an afterlife question I want you to have that in your mind because it'll make sense as we walk through this text of what's going on we're going to walk through all four of these little scenes and we'll see how is it a trap and then how does Jesus talk about his authority how is it a trap question and how does Jesus expose his authority so let's go to this first one here in verse 15 of chapter 22 what we're going to see in this section here is the jurisdiction of Jesus's authority The question is like, who gave this authority? How do you have this authority? That's the question going on. That's the subtext question. We're going to see the jurisdiction of his authority. Look with me in verse 15 of chapter 22. It says, the Pharisees went and they plotted, there it is in plain plain ink there, to entangle him with these words. They're not asking like to learn. They're not asking to understand. They're asking to discredit. It's a a zinger question. It's It's when somebody is interviewing a politician And it's not a real question so the American public can know how to vote. It's a question to expose that person either as a fool or an outsider or some contradiction. That's what's going on. They want to actually entangle him. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Dripping with flattery, setting them up, talking about how great and wonderful. Just so honored to sit down with you in this interview. It's such a, such a privilege to be with you in this space just so they can set them up in these spaces where now they can come with a zinger question. Here's the zinger. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, why is this a trap? The text tells us there's two groups that come. The Herodians come and then these followers of the Pharisees. These would represent two polar extremes. The Pharisees believed that to pay taxes to Caesar was not just like unjust, but it was immoral. The inscription even on the coin had the face of Caesar. And on one side, it declared him to be God. On the other side, it declared him to be the high priest. To use this money, they thought was just such an offense 
to who they were, not just as an oppressed people, but as people that are trying to follow the Big Ten Commandments and not have images or graven idols. So that's one group. The other one, the Herodians, work for Herod, who is the puppet king of Rome. They're actually employed by Rome. So to come and say, who should we pay taxes to, is to put these two groups at odds with each other and Jesus right smack in the middle. If he says, oh yeah, you should totally pay your taxes, then he alienates this entire movement of people that are nationalist, that, that believe actually they should revolt against Rome, that are they're struggling with their national identity. And if he says, oh no, don't pay your taxes, now in this spot he's kind of rebelled against Rome, which they would love to do because that would put a noose around his neck to actually put him on trial where they could actually find something against him. The trap that's set there is to put him in between two movements and ask him to speak into it. It's not a question so much about how whether or not you file what form or whether or not you use H&R Block or how you kind of you work with your accountant. It's not that kind of question. It's an authority question. So look at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrite somebody who looks one way but has a very different intention in their heart. Show me this coin for the tax. So they bring this denarius to him. Again, one side declaring Caesar as God himself, the other side declaring him as the high priest. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And there's a play on words earlier, maybe you notice the footnote there. When they're flattering him, they say, when they say you're not swayed by appearances, you could translate that, you're not kind of persuaded by the face of men, the look on people's faces. When you're talking with somebody, you're not trying to read them to see whether or not they like what you're saying. That's kind of the flattery that gets used there. So for him to take this coin and say, whose face is this? It's kind of rich in some kind of engagement there to kind of hold up this wordplay for them. And they say it's Caesar's. So he says, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he says, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Okay, if you didn't have that experience of being marveled by this, it's because we're pretty removed from time and space. What he says here is mind-blowing. And it's not a secular, sacred divide like, hey, do whatever you have to in the real world and then have this spiritual part of your life. Kind of credit to or respond in that to the one that that's actually owed to as well. The coin has an inscription on it. Humanity has an inscription on it. Give the coin to Caesar. Give the inscription of the Imago Dei to the very one who made the universe, which would encompass everything that Caesar actually owned and tried to leverage for power. What Jesus is saying in this moment, remember, it's a question about authority. He's answering the authority question by saying, I stand as the one who is the very Son of God, who has jurisdiction over everything that's been made. All I ask is that you give rightful due to the one who everything is owed to. Everything ever created, everything ever made, everything ever that has existed comes from God. We read in Colossians chapter 1. So what Jesus is saying is, all that's owed me and my authority is everything. It's a brilliant answer to a trap question to say the jurisdiction of the Messiah is the entire cosmos. He owns it all. And they marvel at that because they're trying to trap him. And instead what he did is took the answer deeper. In fact, it would be too small of a thing just to give us advice about our taxes. What Jesus wants to do is help you see who he is so you can be rescued and redeemed and saved. Talk about the Messiah as the one who has jurisdiction over the entire universe is to put you in a position now then to receive from him. 
to stop with simple trick questions and actually open up your heart. He's not dodging their questions. He's taking it deeper to talk about his jurisdiction. That, that's the first one. goes on to the second trap question in verse 23. It says, the same day the Sadducees, now another group. This is like another rival group. You have two enemies coming together kind of in an alliance against Jesus. That doesn't work. So now a third group comes. And the Sadducees were kind of the elite. They were probably a little bit more wealthy. They, they kind of treasured the Torah. Someone called them like, like Torah purists. That They were really, really, really into the first five books of the law. And it says here that they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that there's life after this one. So with that in mind, they come now and ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, he's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses said this, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, that's what the law says. Okay, here it is. What about this scenario, Jesus? There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, all the brothers died. After them all, the woman died. Okay, so here's the question. In the resurrection, if there is such a thing, then whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, here's the trap they're, they're setting. Of course they don't believe there's life after this one. There won't be a resurrection as, as we understand it. So in that space, the question itself is dubious by nature. And they're trying to use actually the principle of the law to expose that. Hey, if the law says that if a man dies, then his brother should marry the wife, and then in the resurrection, now you have multiple husbands or you have a woman married to multiple men. Or maybe actually there is no resurrection. There's a trap there that's said is something around, if you play this out logically, Jesus, can't you see the loopholes in the very law that you say you believe in? That's the trap that gets set. Remember, it's a question about authority. They're not asking about marriage. They're not tenderly concerned for this woman and all that she would have faced in the middle of the story, they're not asking about what's just in widow care. They're not asking any of that. They're trying to trap Jesus around his authority. Jesus knows that, so he answers them. Verse 29, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's quoting Exodus, which is in the middle of that Torah, in the middle of the Pentateuch. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So again, if you're not astonished, it's because we're, we're separated from lots of space and time and culture. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when it comes to his authority, that the destiny of his authority is way better than you could ever imagine. The first one was about his jurisdiction. This is about the destiny, what is accomplished, where, where all this is going, what happens in the next life. He's answering the authority question to say, hey, it's actually way better than you imagine. So we have to get into the question just for a moment. When it comes to this idea of not being given in marriage after you, or being given in marriage in heaven, there's a ton of sadness for those who are in these amazing marriages. I remember being newly married and thinking about this text and kind of scratching my head and wanting to trust God, but not imagining like that would actually be a good thing. Lo loving my, my new bride, thinking about heaven not being married, in that space it would kind of create all kinds of tensions and questions for me. 
I know you have a ton of tensions and questions. This is just one verse in the Bible. We should not build an entire theology of heaven around this, especially if you understand it's about conflict, it's about authority. That's what he's kind of aiming at. But I think actually he helps us by deepening our understanding of what's going on in heaven. He says, you don't understand the scriptures, which talk about the resurrection, which talk about God raising us from the dead, which talk about the final judgment, which talk about life after this one, nor do you understand the power of God, which I think is key to what he's saying. There's something about who God is that you don't understand that makes you think this is actually a trap question. And here's the answer. It's because you have God himself, the very living God of the universe, as your God. That's his answer to why this trap question falls apart. He says, when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. If he's the God of the living, then there is life after this one. God would keep his promise to his people, not just on this earthly life, but for all of eternity. When God first says this is in Exodus chapter 3, where we see his first divine name of I am who I am. And he says, and I'm the one who, who is the God of, not the God who was, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, implying that they are still alive and he's in relationship with him. This points to the fact that our destiny as creatures is actually to be united with God in the most beautiful, life-giving, nourishing relationship we could ever imagine. The Bible describes marriage in beautiful terms. God invented it. God loves it. God's the one who designed it. He wants to protect it. He put joy and pleasure in the middle of it. He created our bodies and all the parts of our body. He Orgasm was his idea. Intercourse was his idea. Romance was his idea. All of that was his idea. But it wasn't so that we would love marriages. Ephesians 5 says this whole idea of marriage is a pointer to the relationship between Christ and the church. Wrap your mind around this. God created marriage to begin with as a small taste of what it would be like for his people to be romanced by him, to be chosen by him to be intimately loved by him, to, to create a family, to be in a space now where we are called the bride of Christ. The whole thing that we find pleasure in all was meant to be a pointer. So, so one idea is once that thing has actually come to pass, what it's pointing to is no longer needed. I know that doesn't satisfy those of you who are holding hands right now. You're going like, man, I don't know, I don't know. But if you just wrap your mind around this, the idea that what God's doing is better than what we can imagine in this life. The, the pointer is always lesser than what it's pointing to. The sign is always not as amazing. Even if it's a photograph of the destination, it's not the same as the destination. So Jesus is talking about like our, our destiny, where we're aimed, where we're going, is actually a covenant love with the living God of the universe. The reason why this is good news is it's not less than what you thought. It's more than what you thought. It's actually an increased joy, an increased love to actually experience people unencumbered by, by sin and pain and the flesh in ways that we can actually enjoy them beautifully. Intimacy that actually was pointing to the way God designed us to be with him. The reason why it's good news and very pro-marriage is the destiny of marriage is to put us into a space where the greatest groom of all time comes into this romantic relationship with his people. And when it says there that they're going to be like angels, it doesn't mean that we are angels. It means that we experience God unencumbered, that we see him beautifully 
for who he is. That we actually find our space of like a joy and satisfaction in him. Actually, other places in the scriptures, it says the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So in this space, he's doing something much, much deeper. Here's the way the message translates this. It says this, As with the angels, all of our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. In that space, what God is saying in this moment is not less. It's not like you're let down in heaven. It's what God offers you in the next life is way better than what you could ever imagine. And all that we taste in this life is finally fulfilled in the next. Remember, it's not a question about marriage. It's not a question about widow care. It's not even a question about heaven. It's a question about authority. He's answering that specific question. And I'd love to sit down with you, and I have with many of you who are facing your own death. They're thinking about the death of a spouse. To talk about how this actually could be good news with a lot of texture, to hear what it means to actually know each other, unencumbered by sin. To, to be in relationship where we tell stories and we remember to actually celebrate in the most intimate of ways, actually then fully satisfied in God himself, and not asking our spouse to actually do that. When I do a wedding, I normally have this moment where I suck all the romance out of the room and say something like this, hey, this person is not the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. They can't do that. They're not designed for that. To ask them to do that would actually crush them and therefore crush you. Jesus is the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. And saying that lets you actually then enjoy this person. Not asking them to carry more load than they can carry to fully satisfy. So we just stop for a second pastorally. We are looking to marriage and even sex itself to give us way more than it could ever actually give us. So much of your frustration and tension or the way you keep kind of amping things up and trying new things is rooted in the idea that you're going to something temporal, asking it to satisfy something that's eternal. You're designed to actually have all of the ecstasy all of the romance, all of the joy, all the pleasure, that all of even what sexual intimacy points to in its purest form, what it points to is actually meant to have its satisfaction in God himself. And then you live in a fallen and broken world where sin has distorted a ton of things. We have a ton of jagged edges when it comes to sex. And so we're being very malformed by asking sex to satisfy us, to give us identity, to even define us to be something we traffic in with somebody else to get comfort or approval or power or even control. And so here's the crazy thing. If human marriage involving sexuality is meant to be a pointer to the good news of the gospel, then what a false gospel it is to use sex selfishly, to ask it to satisfy me, rather than be a pointer to the one who will fully satisfied. It's a gospel reality. You're, you're reenacting a gospel narrative when you have intercourse in a covenant with a man or a woman. So you take that intercourse outside of the covenant and now you have a false gospel, a false promise of hope and joy and satisfaction and love and approval and comfort. And our culture is screaming with the impact of that. We're, we're bleeding out. We're broken beyond compare with the impact of generations, I would say even centuries and millennium, of asking sex to do more than it could ever do. Pornography, gender dysphoria, stuff with your own body, the way you hate yourself, the way you have this insatiable desire, even the fact that it's insatiable because it's meant to actually be at one 
who is eternal, not someone who's simply physical. There's a million implications to this. Singles, that means you don't have to be married to fully understand intimacy. You don't actually have to have a physical intimate expression to be able to understand what it's pointing to. It's a, it's a signpost. It's a, it's a pointer. And if that's true, then all the more reason why we as God's people should preserve it, protect it, cherish it. The spaces where we're preaching a gospel about God's ultimate satisfaction, there's a ton of healing that takes place when we stop asking sex to do God-like things for us. When you click on a screen because you're stressed or feel entitled because you're overwhelmed, you're asking that image to do God-like things for you. When you manipulate another person, you're asking that person to do God-like things to you. When you assert yourself on someone, you're acting like God at them. All those are forms of brokenness. This passage isn't even really about that. But I know it's in your heart and your mind. And I'm trying to hover around the idea of like, how could this possibly be good news? Because the thing that we look to and we ask and we feel bummed if we didn't have it in heaven is just a shadow of what it's actually pointing to. Remember, he's talking about his own authority. So wrap your mind around this idea. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who everything is destined to find its satisfaction in. By what authority do you have, Jesus? Why are you doing these things? I'm doing them as one who actually has all the authority in the world to fully satisfy people. His destiny and his jurisdiction are seen in those texts. Hey, I realize I touched on a lot of things there. We're going to do a study in the fall with our men around just sexual integrity and wholeness. It's a place we have to kind of move as a people to be more, not just articulate, but embrace the good. Embrace the, the good of who God is. We'll do a series in the fall from the pulpit around sexuality, just trying to help and put some framework and press this out more. But if you find yourself in a place where you're like overwhelmed, if what I'm saying is triggering lots of stuff, like let's talk. There's men and women on our staff who would love to dialogue with you. I want you to see though the point of this about Jesus' authority is he has authority because he's the one that all of it is about. And he is the living God. It's not a switch of topic to talk about him being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's actually the punchline. It's a living God who you get to have a covenant loving relationship with for forever. That's the kind of authority that he carries. That's the second trap question. The third will go faster. It's this question about what's the fulfillment of the law. Look in verse 34, chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. There it is again. It's not a genuine question. They're not trying to learn. They're not trying to organize things in their hearts and minds. They're trying to trap him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So how, why is that a test? Why is that a trap? I mean, it's one of those questions where like, you can't win as you answer it. I read one commentary that, that kind of talked about the way a politician gets asked, like, what's the biggest need facing America? And based on how you answer that, you alienate an entire group, right? If you talk about poverty, you alienate one group. If you talk about the national debt, you alienate another group. Like, there's, there's a place where you answer this question, you're going to push people to different sides. Here's what one scholar said. We know that this temptation, we know this is a temptation or a trap because Matthew tells us. But how they're trying to trap him is a mystery. The main trap seems to be that Jesus will, will say something that will offend some of the Jews or some of the crowd. It's like asking an American politician, what's the most important issue facing us today? If he says health care, he makes the conservatives mad. Since they think the main problem is international terrorism or 
illegal immigration. If he says abortion, he makes nearly everybody mad and positions himself on what the mainstream thinks as a lunatic religious fringe. You cannot answer that question, it seems, without starting a brand new argument. That is the kind of thing the Pharisees want. They want to trap Jesus in his words, trap him so that he loses the support of at least some of that crowd. Because what we see here is the crowd is gathering, hearing this interchange, and they're being drawn to Jesus. They're seeing his authority expressed as what it is, and they're actually moved towards it. So it's a trap because how he answers that will push one side apart or another. And here's what Jesus does. He actually tells us how his authority is meant to be expressed in love. So a jurisdiction, a destiny, now an expression. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And then he pushes it farther. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The trap question is to have us pick sides. Jesus cuts down the middle of that thing to talk about what the whole law was about to begin with. When a king or a government creates laws, it's to express their rule and their preferences and their authority in the land. For God to say the essence of his law is love tells us a whole lot about who he is, what he loves, and what he's like. To put it in that space, then, it's to say the expression of this law is one that actually is aimed at the very heart of God. They, they hate Jesus because he won't let them stay on the surface with their trap questions and their loopholes. He keeps going at the heart. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw him say that it's from the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus is driving his authority to say, I actually have authority over your heart. I actually have authority at the very essence of who you are. And, and he expresses his authority as he causes people to actually love those around him. That's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. It's love. So three trap questions. And as he engages them, we see his jurisdiction, his destiny, and the expression of his authority. And finally, we see now in his trap question, the incarnation of his authority. I know those are really big words. Let me explain. Verse 41. Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Three trap questions from the religious leaders. Now Jesus responds the same way they opened with a question and he responds, saying this, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Which is a question about authority. By whose authority are you doing these things? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Where does he get his authority? Realizing he's already talked about John the Baptist, where God himself said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, showing his authority. So he, Jesus is setting them up in that space. And they say to him, well, well he's the son of David. Whose son is he? He's the son of David. And they're not, not wrong. They're just not complete. The Messiah would come from the family line of David, and they were expecting an earthly political king. What Jesus does now is say where his authority comes from by talking about how God came in flesh with us. He said to them, How is it then that God in this, or that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? How is it that David calls the Messiah Lord, saying, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The trap is that the Bible says we needed more than just an earthly king. We needed God himself to come into our world to do things like forgive us of our sins that no human could possibly do. 
So the real Messiah, the full Messiah, the ultimate Messiah would come as a king and as a priest, as a judge, as a savior, would come and do more than what they had imagined. He's not saying that he's less than the son of David. He's saying he's more than that. He's God himself. For David to call this Messiah Lord, he wouldn't call it of his descendant, is the simple logic of what he's saying. So what Jesus is saying is his authority comes from God being incarnate, God taking on flesh here on earth with us. Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor were they from that day did anybody dare ask him any more questions. Jesus answers his authority question, or the question about his authority, by saying he's God himself. He has jurisdiction over the entire universe. We owe our destiny to him. All of our ultimate satisfaction comes in him. He wants his authority expressed in love. And then he embodied his authority. This quote from uh, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And there's a verse in there that says, You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an Old Testament figure that was both a king and a priest. Kings rule and priests mediate. Kings reign and priests actually come between God and people to make a way for them to have access. Jesus quotes this. He's saying, here I am, God himself in the flesh, making a way for you to have access to God. The authority I have is as the king, and I'm creating a way for you to be in relationship because I'm going to die in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. Even this question about the resurrection, Jesus has already three times said he was going to die and rise again. He's telling us by what authority he has the right to do what he's done. And he expresses that authority in his own self-sacrifice to make a people so we can trust him. To all the questions we have of is he good, should we follow him? See him on the cross dying in our place. See him rising from the grave expressing his power so you can look to him as the one who could satisfy all the longings of your heart. That's what Christians do. Christians look to Jesus as the one who has the authority to save and rescue and redeem. So I would take communion every Sunday. It's where, where the love of God is expressed in his sacrifice and in his mercy. So we take communion as a reminder to ourselves that the God we follow stood in our place, showed his authority by defeating sin and death and hell, and invites us into this eternal relationship with him. So I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off, and we dip it in the cup, representing his broken body and his shed blood. And as you do that, would you bring all of your questions about authority, all your questions and tensions about where God sits in your life and what he's calling you to do and where you find a struggle, where you're resisting, where you wonder if he's good, where you wonder if he's trustworthy. Would you bring all those questions to the communion space where you hold a reminder of his love and sacrifice and power? And ask him to speak to you there in that spot. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to cry out to God. But if you're not a follower of Christ, stay and pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, then come and take communion. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for the ways that you've done it. Thanks for answering these questions in ways that we see a bigger picture of you. You're not less than what we thought. You're, you're more. You, you came to accomplish more. You came and did more. You offer us more. So would you speak from that space to all the doubts and questions we have? You actually have more than we imagine. 
Nourish us now with that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.